2: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick. And so today we're going to be talking about a, an issue in the future of technology. Actually, not just the future, the present of technology. And it's going to have to do with how we assess threats based on uh, different types of, of technological regimes that exist in the world. And so you and I, Robert, are aware that very often we fear the wrong things, right? Oh, yes. I mean, we we fear things that are completely disproportionate to the level of threat they represent in our lives. And this is obvious in some ways because we have phobias of things that are totally harmless. Some people are afraid of balloons or something. I guess they're not harmful to birds and fish, but harmless <laughs> to us. And some people are afraid of, I don't know, public speaking, something that is in some ways genuinely threatening to your reputation maybe, but uh, is not is not a threat to your, to your body, to your body integrity.
1: Yeah, and we have a lot of these, uh, uh, what some people call paper tigers, you mm-hmm. know, where, um, in fact, we have a, a whole... Um, it's a classic episode of stuff to blow your mind about paper tigers, where something uh, something that is ultimately not life threatening or even something that's not even going to cause you actual physical injury, uh, we build it up in our minds to the level that it's really on par with some sort of a a large predatory creature, uh, you know, in our our primordial past. Right. You know, like we give it the same credence we would give a tiger leaping out of the bushes at us.
0: So those are the obvious ways that we fear the wrong things. We Mm -hmm. fear stuff that isn't even literally going to hurt us. But then people are just wrong in the ways they assess the relative dangers of actual physical threats. It's like attacks by animals. You know, people are more afraid of, say, being attacked and killed by a shark. Mm -hmm. But sharks kill almost nobody. They kill like less than 10 people on average per year worldwide. Uh, You know, you, you are extremely unlikely to die by shark attack, even if you swim a lot. Meanwhile, animals that don't command nearly as much fear and and grip our minds in the same way like dogs kill way more people dogs kill tens of thousands of people every year and mosquitoes which spread diseases uh, they literally kill hundreds of thousands of people annually nobody's got mosquito phobia I mean I guess maybe some people do
1: yeah it's true like at least some people have dog phobias I think you can you can basically look to horror cinema and see this played out right mm-hmm. how many how many dog horror films can you think of? Yes, you can think of some key ones here and there, mainly Cujo, right? Right. Um, and a few others of note. Uh, you can, all, And then when you think of shark horror films, there's just an endless supply. You could spend the rest of your life, I think, watching terrible shark movies. But when it comes to mosquitoes, you basically just have man mosquito, and that's—it's not even just a straight-up mosquito movie. It's a—it's a, it's a human mosquito hybrid.
0: Well, part of it has to do with the kinds of imagery that excite our brain. I mean, mm-hmm. you just—it's hard to make a mosquito look scary. Mosquitoes look irritating.
1: Yeah, but then on the other hand, uh, uh, ticks are horrifying-looking and carry illnesses. And as we uh, pointed out uh, in the past, there's only one. There's really only one kick horror film, and it's terrific, but there's only <laughs> one of them.
0: You're talking about the one with uh, Seth Green and Clint Howard, Ron yes. Howard's brother.
1: Yeah. I'll make sure that we link to the Trailer Talk video episode <laughs> uh, on the landing page for this episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, in which we talk about this uh, cinematic jewel.
0: Well, if you must. Uh, but people are also totally off base in the way they assess the relative dangers of, say, travel threats. Everybody's heard this statistic, right, about travel travel methods?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, fear of flying being a huge one. Yeah. Um, you know, driving is considerably more dangerous, and yet it's it's flying that fills so many of us with varying levels of anxiety. I can personally relate to this, and I'm continually fascinated and frustrated by the way like this deeper irrational – Fear can overpower, or at least sufficiently overpower, my rational understanding of the risks.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I. I have had various levels of fear of flying in the past and yet I totally understand like I've read all the statistics about how per mile traveled you are so much safer in a uh, in a commercial airliner than you are say driving yourself somewhere.
1: Yeah, like just as a rational human being you you think well I can just I can educate myself out of this fear. Uh like with with the airplane thing I think back to um was it the escape pod episode where we talked mm-hmm. about like where, why there are no escape pods on airplanes. Right. And uh, it doesn't and, make sense. Yeah, that it doesn't make sense. And also, if you are going to encounter a dangerous situation in an airplane, like it's going to be far more often, it's going to be the takeoff or the landing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yet I'll, t- I'll run through these facts. I'll run through uh, the, the material that we researched. And, uh, and it still doesn't quite penetrate the, the deeper set anxiety that sometimes kicks in while I'm flying.
0: Yeah, and this disconnect between what we fear and the actual threat is kind of troubling. But but it actually gets worse because you can point out some scenarios where fearing the wrong thing has direct consequences in reality. So I was reading this short article on Edge.org from 2016 by the psychology professor David G. Myers about how humans just do not accurately gauge what the real threats they face are. Uh, for example. People tend to be very afraid of terrorist attacks. And of course, that makes sense. Terrorist attacks are straightforwardly terrifying, like they they are a horrible thing. But statistically, they are so unlikely to harm you. Just as one example, uh, Myers points to how much more likely you are to be harmed by riding in a motor vehicle by being in a car accident, than by being a victim of a terrorist attack. And yet terrorism is designed exactly to make us afraid of threats in an outsized way. That's sort of the purpose of it, right? It's to grip your mind with a horrifying image that will force you to behave irrationally in response.
1: Yeah, kind of a forced recategorization of a safe or reasonably safe place. Uh, and, and of course, that can be psychologically damaging. That's again, the whole point of terrorism.:
0: Yeah, exactly. Terrorism plays on our psychology. and Myers gives an example of how this can work exactly against our interests. So after the 9/11 attacks in America, a lot of people were very worried about terrorist attacks on airplanes, and as a result, fewer people were flying. Uh, But Myers did the math on the effects of this given the statistics about the relative safety of these travel methods. And he discovered that if people in general flew an average of 20 percent less and didn't just like not travel anywhere but instead made all those same trips and covered the same amount of ground by driving – then their risk of fatal injury actually went up because scheduled airline flights, as we know, are much safer than surface travel by car per mile. So if Americans flew 20 percent less in 2001 and made the same trips by car, we could expect about 800 more people to die in auto fatalities that year. And Myers reports that later there was a German psychologist named Gerd Gigerinzer who uh, checked this prediction against travel data for the year, and, uh, the year following the attacks – And uh, Gerd determined that an estimated 1,500 Americans died in traffic accidents while trying to avoid the dangers of air travel. So Myers writes, quote, long after 9-11, the terrorists were still killing us. And in a way, this is true, that they were able to present people with horrifying images that made them behave irrationally, made them worry about the wrong things, and actually led to more dangerous decisions that hurt more people. And of course, this is limited merely to people's choice of how to travel, right? There, <laughs> there are obviously other ways that you can say terrorism leads to negative consequences that actually harm the people who are seeking security and all that political decisions and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, basically um, affecting at, at various levels how you live your life.
0: Yeah, trying to get people to operate on the basis of terror management rather Mm -hmm. than rational decision-making. And people don't make good decisions when they're terrified. And part of the reason is that there's this principle exploited by terrorism. It's the cognitive bias known as the availability heuristic. And we've talked about this on the show before, but basically what this means is that – Items and events which you are, uh, which you have easily accessible in your memory are given undue weight in our considerations. So when we try to think about what's dangerous, what are the things we should worry about and protect ourselves against, we actually end up not thinking about what is statistically the most relevant threat, but we end up thinking basically about what's the most scary. And these are two very different things. Scary images stick in the mind, and real threats very often go unnoticed. Myers writes, quote, Thus we remember and fear disasters, tornadoes, air crashes, attacks that kill people dramatically in bunches, while fearing too little the threats that claim lives one by one. We hardly notice the half million children dying quietly each day from rotavirus, Bill Gates once observed, the equivalent of four 747s full of children every day, and we discount the future and its future weapon of mass destruction, climate change. And so Myers goes on to quote the American security and privacy expert, uh, Bruce Schneier, who says, quote, if it's in the news, don't worry about it. The very definition of news is something that hardly ever happens. (laughs) Now, of course, that's not always the case because, of course, you could see news reports about things that are are real things to be concerned about. But I think what he's talking about there is that if you detect you're in a situation of uh, if it bleeds, it leads, you should do your best not to let the scary spectacle of what you're seeing become overrepresented as a threat in your brain.
1: And of course, it's also the case with false news, which we've talked about recently, um, in, in which case this is something that never happens, right. and it can end up affecting the way we, we live our lives or govern ourselves. I mean, think to such uh, moral panics, as say satanic panic, or, the, or a, you know, to a lesser degree, the, the poison candy myth, the yeah. idea that uh, Halloween candy is going to be uh, tampered with and then uh, handed out to children. These are things that, that, that did not happen but became pervasive ideas. I mean, especially in the case of Satanic Panic. This is the fiction that there is or was an organized effort among secret occultists to ritually abuse children, uh, a fantasy that resulted in manufactured trauma, uh, ruined lives, and a legacy of superstitious uh, persecution and violence in parts of the world, including uh, parts of Africa where you kind of see the echo effect of, uh, of, of satanic panic in Western nations, uh, predominantly the United States, in the 1980s.
0: Yeah, but we should remember, of course, while we talk about the myth to talk about 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 the causal reality. I think a lot of people think what was going on when people were coming up with stories of satanic ritual abuse in the 80s was that children were being led in interviews and and prompted by police and therapists and people who had these pre existing ideas in their head. And children were just sort of like going along with what they perceived the adults. who want them to say.
1: Right. And, and, it, and of course, it wasn't just the children of the children were a, a major part of it. you also had adults with these, uh, these, these, these supposed memories that they were reclaiming through therapy that yeah. were revealing past uh, satanic abuse. Um, but, but yeah, it all it all amounted to a, a manufactured fear that uh, that so many people bought into. And the thing that Everyone was afraid of did not exist and has never existed. Yeah, you know uh, it's uh, it, it. It still floors me. There, there's a, an older episode of stuff to blow your mind about it. Um, we'll have to link to that.
0: It's it's a fascinating psychological event in history that it makes you realize yet again that it's the vividness of the imagery and sort of the what the uh, what the threat suggests as an idea that captures people's fear, not so much the present reality of the threat.
1: Yeah, and it drives home just how <laughs> how easy it is then um, uh, psychologically to just to have an, an unbalanced fear of flying or dogs or terrorism or what have you.
0: Mm-hmm. And so for today, I wanted to take this principle the, that we don't exactly fear the right thing and and, uh, and try to redirect it in one particular area, which is the kind of thing we're usually worried about when it comes to AI and autonomous weaponry and the dangers of, of uh, technological weapons. I think we are worried about the wrong stuff or more specifically – we're worried about stuff that we should be worried about, but we're worried almost exclusively about the smaller threat rather than the larger threat.
1: The smaller, more dramatic, and I think this is I, this is something that, that came up when you were listing the examples earlier, a threat that you could, if given the chance, physically run from. Fearing climate change, for instance, how do you run from that? How do you hide behind a bush? <laughs> uh, like, but a tornado, on the other hand you could conceivably run into a bunker right mm-hmm. you can you can you can attach a lot of anxiety to it uh, but then you could conceivably see it and and react in real time to its uh, to its threat
0: But if you're in a place where tornadoes don't happen very often, say, Mm -hmm. and you are investing a lot of energy and resources into preparing for a tornado threat instead of investing that energy and resources into something that will definitely affect you in the future, like, say, climate change, which Mm -hmm. will affect most people wherever you are in one way or another, especially with all of its secondary downstream effects. If you're investing exclusively in the lesser threat, then you are doing yourself and your future descendants a disservice. Absolutely, all right. Well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will talk about different types of technological weapon threats.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray.
1: Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. So, Joe, I know that when we we talk about technological weapon threats, Mm -hmm. what we're really talking about here is, of course, uh, ED-209. Uh, We're we're talking about the Terminator, right? We're talking about uh, Chopping Mall, the killer robots of Chopping Mall that uh, may just go out of control and start hunting our teenagers down in the malls
0: of the future. Chopping Mall is a fantastic piece (laughs) of 80s trash cinema. Uh, but but no, I mean that is the thing that captures our mind, right? Because you can so, run from it. Yeah, there's a robot with a gun on it. Mm-hmm. That that is the standard image of okay, what is the AI autonomous weapon threat of the future? It is a Terminator. It is those killer robots from the Matrix. It is something that is a an embodied robot that is coming to you know point a gun at you and make you do something, or hunt you down for robot sport, or something mm-hmm. like that, and. I want to be clear that this is absolutely a real thing worth discussing. Not so much, I, I don't know about Terminators, but the idea of conventional autonomous weapons. That I'm not saying that is not worth discussing because it is. It's been the focus of a lot of international conversation about the ethics of warfare. We're actively trying to figure out how to regulate this. And there are, for example, uh, United Nations conventions on discussing autonomous conventional weapons and what we should do about them.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, the ideas of you know, ED-209, Terminators, what have even Chopping Mall, sci-fi has always spoken to our anxieties and our fears, mm-hmm. uh, and our hopes about technology and where it's going to to get us, and given us vivid imagery to feed our availability heuristic for these types of threats. Yeah, and of course, give us something that we can we can we can we can run from. You know, we can we can battle. You can fight back against the the, the machines in
0: Chopping Mall. Right. But to get serious for a minute, I mean, we are more and more seeing actual semi-autonomous weapon technology being introduced into military arsenals around the world.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you'd have to be under a rock to have avoided uh, uh, any, any coverage of uh, the U.S. military's use of drone strikes mm-hmm. in recent decades, uh, and and that's that's just the the tip of the iceberg too. I mean, um, I, I was reading a little bit about uh, autonomous weapons in uh, Max Tegmark's uh, recent book, Life three and he points out that uh, you have uh, uh, the, you have in the U.S. military the U.S. Uh, phalanx system for its uh, Aegis-class uh, cruisers that auto- automatically detect, track, and attack threats such as anti-ship missiles and aircraft. Yeah, uh, you may have seen images of these these like big domed-looking devices with uh, the weapon on on the front.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, we'll think about other types of uh, automatic missile defense, the the Israeli Iron Dome system.
1: Yeah. But uh in particular though uh this this one system it's been in service since 1980 still in service today and it uh, it actually led to the 1988 uh, downing of Iran Air flight 655 a civilian Iranian passenger jet killed all 290 people on board and caused international outrage there was however a human in the loop on this system who made the error and that's that's one of the key distinctions between uh Some of these uh, contemporary and and past autonomous weapon systems and the possible future of autonomous weapon systems is there a human being that is at some point weighing in on the decision or having to make a final decision
0: and in pretty much all conventional autonomous weapon systems i can think of today they're, they're not fully autonomous they're right. semi-autonomous there's still a human command structure a human override they're still basically being controlled by humans but they're making some kind of uh, they've got some kind of uh, automatic assistance function right
1: they'll be, there'll be be a drone pilot somewhere yeah. or in some of these models I, I believe it would be you'll have a drone pilot and maybe they're looking they're dealing with with multiple drones but there's still a human in the loop on that particular weapon system yeah and just a reminder that uh, that uh, russia is believed to be testing its first autonomous uh, nuclear torpedo the idea with this is that it would be guided largely by ai to strike uh, the united states even if it lost all communications with moscow uh, a frightening weapon concept, to be sure, and and but it's a uh, one that was originally proposed back in the 1960s by um, um, Andre Sakharov, and uh, some analysts call this a, a doomsday weapon, and with good reason. That's a, it's a terrifying concept.
0: It certainly is. I mean, one, one at least hopes that there's there's still human command structure there, and and but th- these types of weapons, all these things we've been talking about, are. Part of this debate, part of this debate that the international community is having about what are the ethics of autonomous weapon systems, especially if they're not just weapon systems used to, say, uh, shoot down incoming enemy missiles. I mean that – you sort of see the difference there, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. imagine uh, a missile defense kind of thing is different from something that will be aiming at people or aiming at places where people could be, even though even a missile defense system could, of course, as we've seen, go, go awry.
1: Right, right. I mean, yeah, it becomes increasingly more complicated when you start thinking about um, military engagement, say, in a city, if you're having to deal with civilians and, or, uh, or, or or uh, uh, you know, uh, combatants that are mm-hmm. not uh, in uniform, that sort of thing, or any variety of uh, morally complex standoff situation. Yeah. How do you program for that?
0: Yeah. And so that is a very important question, but I wanted to focus today on a potentially – even more dangerous class of weapons that can h- actually hurt many more people and a class of weapons that in fact already exist in some form today and we have a pretty clear vision of how much more advanced and how much more dangerous they will continue to get in the very near future even without access to heavy weapons or manufacturing capabilities. So I got the idea to have this discussion when I read an article in uh, Undark magazine, which if – Robert, you ever read an Undark –
1: yeah, I don't think I've read this one before. When you mentioned the title, my mind immediately went to various uh, horror fiction
0: publications. <laughs> it's got a horror kind of name. I yeah. think it's named after – intentionally named after a type of radium paint huh. that was used uh, back in the day, I think early 20th century when before people realized what the risks of it were. And that's sort of what the magazine explores. It explores science and a lot of good long-form science writing, exploring the good and the bad that science has to offer. But anyway, th- this article was published in July of this year in 2018 by a science journalist named Jeremy Sue, and it's called Forget Killer Robots, Autonomous Weapons Are Already Online. So I was reading this, and I started thinking about this, so I thought this would be a good topic for us to talk today. So Sue starts by discussing the ways that the problem of autonomous weaponry has really captured people's attention worldwide in the conventional weapon sense. And as we've been talking about, there's a good reason for this. If we're going to be increasingly using robots and AI, programs capable of delivering lethal force on the battleground, or I guess to be less euphemistic, if we're going to have machines that can kill people without a human taking responsibility and directly making the machine do it. We really need to be having serious conversations about the ethics of this technology. Should there be international treaties governing what kinds of autonomous weapons we allow each other to make and so forth? I mean, we've got international treaties about nuclear weapons. Shouldn't there be international treaty agreements on autonomous weapons?
1: Oh yeah, I mean it makes sense. Uh, yeah, to your point, we have uh, we have treaties about nuclear weapons. We have we have treaties about biological and chemical agents as well. <laughs> we have treaties about just the way that one wages traditional uh warfare there are various uh you know non nuclear non biological weapons that are also banned uh, under uh, international treaty so it makes sense that we would, we would also have uh, treaties dealing with autonomous systems.
0: Yeah, it totally makes sense. And these conversations, as we've been saying, are ongoing. Uh, Sue writes about how the issue was discussed at a United Nations convention in Geneva in April of this year in, in 2018. And this was part of an ongoing series of conversations with the UN's Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which has a kind of clunky name. But uh, th- that's a useful kind of forum to be having right now. But while we're having this debate about the role of AI and autonomous programming and conventional deadly weapons, we really tend to miss the fact that autonomous weapons are already being used widely in warfare around the world. And we're talking about cyber warfare, not autonomous guns and bombs and missiles, but little pieces of computer code that autonomously attack systems around the world or in targeted places –
1: Plus, with software, there's always the the worry of replication. Yeah. Uh, no matter how worried you are about AI-controlled uh, nuclear uh, torpedoes, you usually don't have to fret about them mating with each other and producing a torpedo offspring.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean it, that it it introduces a totally different dynamic of threat and a certainly different dynamic of proliferation, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's something that makes it a whole different ballgame when we're considering how much of a threat it is and what kind of limits we should put on it in international agreements. So much the same way that we debate how to make air travel safer while people are are dying by the thousands on the road in traffic accidents, we're, we're debating autonomous conventional weapons, which does matter, while autonomous cyber weapons are already here and already fighting and potentially capable of doing far more harm and killing more people than a robot with a gun could. But I think the availability heuristic is at play again here because it's it's just that the damage done by autonomous uh, digital weapons like these computer viruses and and worms and malicious bits of code the 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 type of damage done by these is less visceral it's harder to picture and it definitely has fewer movies about it and thus it doesn't get the advantage offered by the availability heuristic you get when you get pictures of terminators
1: that's right when when you think of an infrastructure wrecking uh, malicious program uh It's really hard to think of uh, any any horror films that that really line up with that concept. The best I can come up with is uh, Stephen King's Maximum
0: Overdrive, (laughs) which is, of course, (laughs) a a a ridiculous film. (laughs) So that is the most realistic picture of future technology threat.
1: Yeah, it's strange how this works, right? Uh, We were talking about this a little before we, we started rolling. Uh, you know it's it's uh, it's been said that uh, any sufficiently advanced uh, technology is indistinguishable from magic right uh-huh. and you can point to to various bits of mythology m- myths of say humans creating other uh, rational beings and in the past these were this was pure fantasy mm-hmm. now uh in the 21st century it is uh, it is far more realistic when we look at models of, of ai and genetic engineering etc Uh, Likewise, maximum overdrive was ridiculous in the (laughs) 1980s. But as we enter into this age uh, that is increasingly defined by research into autonomous vehicles or the Internet of Things, uh,
0: it – it, maximum Overdrive is suddenly not so bonkers. It is crazy. In the 1980s, people might have said, "Okay, Maximum Overdrive is a silly fantasy mm-hmm. uh, about the future technology threat and Terminator is a more realistic right. movie about future technology threat." And looking at the lay of the land today, I say I mean obviously Maximum Overdrive is cartoony, but the general picture outlined by the two of them, Maximum Overdrive might be the more realistic threat. Any sufficiently
1: advanced technology is indistinguishable from maximum overdrive.
0: But if you're lost right now, oh, OK, why do we say that? Maximum Overdrive, by the way, is basically just a a, a ridiculous 80s Stephen King movie where like trucks and appliances and everything, every electronic thing or uh, sometimes just cars and stuff start yeah, trying to kill mostly people.
1: Mostly cars and like really uh, badass trucks <laughs> <laughs> come to life and start killing things. Uh, but, but also I think like toaster ovens and lawnmowers and yeah. whatnot.
0: So uh, so, what autonomous cyber weapons have already been deployed? We said this is already a thing that exists. Uh, so in his article, Sue quotes Scott Borg, uh, director and chief economist of the U.S. Cyber Consequences Unit. And Borg says, quote, malicious computer programs that could be described as intelligent autonomous agents are what steal people's data – build botnets, lock people out of their systems until they pay a ransom, and do most of the other work of cybercriminals. So he's talking about the fact that generally when there's cybercrime going on, it's not a cybercriminal sitting at a computer like manually doing stuff to you. They've, mm-hmm. they've created a program that does it autonomously. So they, they just put it, they, they let it go, and it does its work. And then they reap the benefits. But there have been plenty of examples of this type of warfare in in actual international relations. So there's the Stuxnet worm. This is a malicious computer worm that attacked computers controlling nuclear centrifuges in Iran, and it's believed to have slowed down the development of the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, I think this happened around 2010. And no one's admitted responsibility, but it appears that this was a cyber weapon created by the United States and Israel to try to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, Another example would be the WannaCry ransomware worm, which shuts down computers and demands payment of Money before allowing the computers to be made functional again, and WannaCry has caused real damage. It attacked computer systems in hospitals at the UK National Health Service, among a bunch of other important infrastructure machines.
1: Plus, I think you could you could, you could reasonably argue that there was uh, psychological damage uh, inflicted by that attack as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe not as much as like a full blown uh, cyber terrorism. Uh, event, but it certainly captured headlines, and it was it was the kind of threat that's kind of, that's central to the, the the appeal of a terroristic uh, uh, act. It it makes everyone feel like they could be a potential victim.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And in fact, a lot of people, you could be a potential victim. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a thing that that's worth being concerned about and thinking about. What defensive measures? could we put in place uh, again no one has plausibly admitted responsibility for the wannacry attack but a lot of analysts think signs point to it being a project of the north korean government now these examples demonstrate that like any weapon an autonomous uh, an autonomous cyber weapon can be used for various types of uh, conflicts, right? Like in the case of the Stuxnet worm, whatever you think about the U.S. and Israel, I I think most people would probably agree that they're glad somebody figured out a nonviolent way to stop an authoritarian regime from making nuclear weapons. But then again, the same technology could be used by the same actors or by others to attack Things that are you – know, that would get less sympathy from people around the world, attack critical infrastructure anywhere, power, water, security, hospitals, telecommunications, media, banks and financial systems, transportation. I mean all these things are increasingly connected now.
1: Yeah, and we've only seen partial use of these cyber weapons. Certainly, nothing of the magnitude of a, of a full-scale cyber war. Uh, something that uh, that you know that, that some uh, futurist and cybersecurity uh, analysts have have written about and discussed. Like, what would this look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, though, though, the, the, though, many of them stress that even these limited uses. They can build legitimacy for the development of such weapons as well as for the development of national cyber response teams. And it's inevitable, too, that that such attacks will lean increasingly into machine learning and the use of AI. Mm-hmm. So what we've seen so far is, is sadly just like the tip of the
0: iceberg. Unfortunately, yeah, and I want to talk more about that, especially the role of machine learning and AI later on. But um, one of the things I really want to stress is that these days in the modern world attacks on infrastructure are not necessarily just inconveniences.
1: It's not like thinking, "Oh, well, I just lost internet for a day. It was actually kind of nice because I went outside and took a walk."
0: Yeah, I mean, you might have lost power in your neighborhood before and you know, it was an inconvenience or something, but you were fine. But at a large enough scale, Attacks like these on infrastructure that that are totally plausible under under the world we live in today, they're pretty much guaranteed to result in people facing serious material loss, injury, and death. As an example for comparison, you could look at the tragedy that's happened in Puerto Rico following the uh, following the landfall of Hurricane Maria in September 2017. Now. When that happened, when uh, Puerto Rico was hit by the hurricane, it effectively knocked out Puerto Rico's electrical power grid and and temporarily put a stop to lots of services in its aftermath, including electricity, sewage treatment, some types of health and medical care, clean tap water, and so forth. And in a civilization that's built on the assumption of continued access to services like power and clean water, sudden interruption of those services is devastating and genuinely lethal. And while we we can't be sure of the exact number of people who died as a result of the devastation caused by the hurricane, there have been some estimates and it seems like a lot of people survived the initial storm – but died in the weeks and months afterwards from complications in the aftermath. A lot of these possibly due to interruptions in services, healthcare, disease, and so forth. Uh, A Harvard study published in the New England Journal of Medicine used survey data from households in Puerto Rico to try to estimate the amount of the human impact. And they found that among respondents, there was a mortality rate of about 14.3 deaths Per thousand persons in uh, September twentieth through the end of twenty seventeen, and this yielded somewhere between seven hundred and ninety three and eight thousand four hundred ninety eight excess deaths above the normal rate for this period the, the mean of those numbers would be like 4600 people uh, and that was within that range with a 95% confidence interval so the authors think the death toll could actually be higher because the survey data is contaminated by survivor bias right people who died were not able to respond to the survey now, we don't know for sure if that estimate is accurate. There could be flaws in the method. But if it's accurate, that's equivalent to a 62 percent increase in the mortality rate as compared to the same period in 2016. And we should acknowledge there's been a lot of anger about the way the US government handled the, the Hurricane Maria aftermath – uh, with charges that it basically didn't do enough to get essential infrastructure and services back online fast enough and that people actually suffered and died as a result of not having this infrastructure online.
1: Arguably in a manner that would have been far different had this been uh, you know, the, the aftermath of a terrorist uh, attack. Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, or something that was a, a little more – centralized, personified, or, t- or tied in with these more pervasive fears.
0: Yeah, there, there does appear to be a weird psychology in the way societies respond to threats and that all different kinds of biases can provide differential motivation in, in how much effort we put into to fixing the problem afterwards and helping people. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a horrible tragedy there, but we should think about that this kind of tragedy is what happens due to a random attack by the weather. One can only wonder what it would look like if, say, infrastructure was attacked not randomly by the weather but by a malicious party intentionally trying to do as much damage as possible with Mm -hmm. digital weapons.
1: Yeah, I mean obviously a number of possibilities instantly come to mind. Uh, to targeting infrastructure during uh, the, the very depths of winter, for example. Right. Or during um, a, a key, say, politically sensitive times, like during an election.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I've read that there th- there is belief that there was uh, Russian digital autonomous agent attacks against, say, some Ukrainian power infrastructure mm-hmm. during times of political upheaval and civil unrest, which, you know, it only makes things worse, the timing of those attacks. And a scary part is that we're constantly connecting more and more devices to the internet.
1: Yeah, like our refrigerators
0: to the internet. Cars, home appliances, medical devices, and even medical implants. Every year, the connectedness does not shrink. It grows. And thus, every year, the world's connectedness and vulnerability to cyber attacks, you could argue, becomes even greater.
1: Almost as if we really want maximum overdrive to happen, as if we were saying, you know – you know that mo- that movie that came out in the 80s that was so ridiculous? Uh, let's do that. Let's just go ahead and put our refrigerator and our toaster on the internet and have them talk to each other.
0: I mean, it's hard to predict exactly what attacks would look like, though there has been a lot of work on this. And maybe if we revisit this topic in the future, we could just more explicitly uh, explore scenarios that have been uh, talked about by cybersecurity experts. Yeah, in
1: particular, the, the the concept of full-blown cyber warfare, what that would look like if you had nation-states actively and at least semi-openly engaging in uh, attacks and counterattacks against each other with the possibility then of actual military uh, attacks on top of that.
0: Yeah, totally. But I mean, one thing I really want to drive home, if you take anything away from this episode, I want it to be that Attacks by autonomous digital agents, just computer viruses basically Mm -hmm. in the common understanding, worms and stuff like that, things that don't have a gun or a missile or an explosive attached to them can be just as dangerous, just as deadly and probably more so than conventional weapons can be. Absolutely. And remember another thing is that most of these attacks can at least in theory function without ongoing human input or direction, right? It's the set it and forget it model of warfare. Like you you make an autonomous digital agent, a computer virus, a worm, whatever, to attack infrastructure out there. And you might be able to design it so that you don't need to go back and do anything to it later. You don't need to maintain it, uh, direct it. It functions on its own. That's what autonomous means.
1: Yeah, it's it's basically the more perfect version of the nuclear torpedo that i talked about earlier like the the idea there of course is that it's out there it's not communicating back and then it could it then it strikes its target uh, detonates and causes you know lasting uh, radioactive damage to a particular area mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, and loss of life uh, and damage to the infrastructure etc uh but we're talking about digital agents that would be able to achieve many of those same goals uh but without the same risk of components aging and uh, and, uh, and and the torpedo itself eventually dying.
0: right? And though one thing about what you just said does make me want to emphasize, I'm not suggesting that cyber warfare is, say, worse than a nuclear attack would be. I don't mm-hmm. think that's true. I mean, obviously, a full-scale attack by conventional or nuclear weapons would be a worse outcome than a cyber attack. But I think a cyber attack is a more a threat that we need to be even more concerned about because it can be very very realistically destructive and it's very likely to happen because it's already happening. I mean it's something that you can very easily see being deployed. Much more so than you can imagine say a nuclear war between currently nuclear armed countries.
1: Right. Yeah, when we try to imagine an the anonymous use of of a nuclear or even a powerful enough conventional weapon. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's far less less likely compared to the anonymous use of a particularly volatile cyber weapon because we haven't really seen the former and we've definitely definitely
0: seen the latter. Exactly. So a a lot of this article that I mentioned earlier that got me thinking about this by uh, Jeremy Sue it it's simply highlighting the fact that governments and international organizations are not having enough conversation about guidelines for how to control the threat. Of autonomous cyber weapons, we are having some international conversations about what to do about autonomous conventional weapons—the robot with a gun. We are not having enough conversations about what to do about controlling autonomous cyber weapons, and th- these autonomous cyber weapons are already here and being used. They're easier to create and deploy, and potentially, in many cases, more destructive than autonomous conventional weapons. One of the experts that Sue quotes in his article is Kenneth Anderson, a professor of law at American University who specializes in uh, national security. One of the experts Sue quotes in his article is Kenneth Anderson, a professor, uh, a law professor at American University who does national security issues. And Anderson says, where is the ban killer apps NGO advocacy campaign demanding a sweeping total ban on the use, possession, transfer, transfer, or development of cyber weapons? All the features found in today's Stop Killer Robots campaign. I think that's a good question.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I mean, I, I hope that that someone is putting it together. I would very much, especially after this episode, like to support such a campaign.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've got nuclear non-proliferation agreements and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It seems more than reasonable to be trying to work on a similar framework for cyber weapons. Right.
1: And, and, and nuclear proliferation treaties have... To a large extent worked i mean for, for starters, we have not had a nuclear war, which some commentators have said is, is nothing short of a miracle um, uh, we've seen uh, the nuclear um, uh, stockpiles of uh, of, of the, the United States and Russia uh, de- deplete over the decades, and hopefully that will remain the trend again we've seen uh, similar scenarios with biological and chemical agents as well, so something could be done here if we act and we actually, uh, uh, you know, push uh, for regulations to be made.
0: You know, Robert, one of the things you mentioned earlier is about uh, the difficulty in controlling the proliferation of digital agents as Mm -hmm. compared to conventional weapons, right? Like uh, digital agents, a a computer worm or uh, a virus, something like that can replicate in the wild in some scenarios. So I, I would say that this is also a case where just like with nuclear weapons, it's like if if two countries with nuclear weapons go to war, it's not just a problem for the people in those two countries. It's a problem for the entire world. Yes, and I would say that uh, software based digital warfare agents that operate on the internet are similarly a problem for the entire world because you don't know potentially who they could harm on the sidelines.
1: yeah, I mean we with with nuclear biological and chemical agents, obviously we all share an atmosphere. We all share uh, a global environment. And when we wage devastating war within that environment, uh, we, we run the risk of, uh, of destabilizing uh, uh, everything and harming ourselves in the process. And with uh, digital technology, we have created another environment that we have, uh, we have made ourselves dependent upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we run the risk of, of doing the same thing, poisoning this new ocean that we've created.
0: Especially when we consider the possibility of these autonomous agents becoming more adaptive. Mm-hmm. And I think we should explore that after we take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love—
2: get admission, parking and all day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. All
1: right, we're back. We're talking about the uh the future, the dangers, the risk and how we should uh how we should really uh, handle the risk and handle anxiety over uh, the The prospect of of cyber warfare in the future
0: so here 's something I think is really worth considering, and it 's the convergence of cyber warfare and cyber weapons with machine learning and artificial intelligence because we 've already got autonomous cyber weapons the, these these malicious bits of software out there that you know enact warfare on on infrastructure of opposing forces in the world, and we 've got machine learning and AI. And there's really no reason these capabilities could not be combined. So this is a future that combines the devastating capabilities of cyber warfare with the attack dynamics of something like biological or germ warfare. This is a future that should worry us. Autonomous cyber weapons that can learn, adapt, and change on their own. And I think it's not hard to see how we could potentially go down this road of developing dangerous AI cyber weapons that alter themselves through machine learning and get out of control. I thought of just a couple of scenarios that seem plausible to me at least. Uh, One would be cyberterrorism. You know, some forces are not rational actors seeking to limit the harm they cause and preserve their interests, but some people are just simply interested in causing harm and chaos. I imagine how bad things could be if somebody like the Unabomber had computer skills to wage lone wolf cyber warfare of this kind. But then I also think about dangerous autonomous AI that begins as a defensive measure to protect against cyber attacks. So, most harmful military technologies, Robert, I bet you would agree, most of these harmful technologies and strategies in world history have not come from people claiming to be developing offensive weapons to maliciously attack unsuspecting victims. They've been developed under a mindset, whether this is really objectively fair or not, of defense. People think like, I'm under threat. I need to do something to protect myself.
1: Exactly. I mean, this is the, this has been the arms race throughout history, right? Uh, if, if the other side has a large slingshot, I need an equally sized size slingshot. I need something that is a t- deterrent. Uh, Otherwise, they're just going to take advantage of me.
0: Yeah. So what what looks like offensive threatening behavior from your perspective, from the other person's perspective is like, look, I just got to defend myself. Uh, So usually by the time you recognize you've been the victim of a cyber attack, a lot of damage is already done. So what if in the future we decide we need autonomous, adaptive, defensive cyber weapons to protect us against offensive cyber weapons, something like an immune system for our infrastructure, the equivalent of deployed white blood cells, you know, T cells and B cells and so forth, to autonomously detect, hunt and kill malicious autonomous cyber weapons the same way that white blood cells blood cells in your body behave kind of like an adaptive independent organism within the body hunting and killing autonomously in the bloodstream.
1: Well, that sounds great, Joe, but now you're right back to Skynet. Like this sounds exactly like Skynet. Except it is like Skynet is just is the, the clunkier metaphor for what the future may become.
0: Well, it's not Terminators holding guns, but it is a distributed defense network at this point. You're, you're talking about like an antivirus virus. Well, with, right. With or,
1: or the possibility of an, of an immune system turning against itself, turning against its host, which of, which of course we see in the biological
0: world. Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly where I was going with that. So you've got autoimmune diseases. If you've got an immune system, you run the risk of the immune system in, say, cases like arthritis or type 1 diabetes or MS, misidentifying friendly uh, tissue as something that needs to be defended against and attacking its own body, you know, turning, uh, turning parts of the body into innocent victims, except the nature of the internet and the connected world means that if one system develops the digital equivalent of an autoimmune disease, potentially anybody could catch it. I'd also pair this this kind of scary scenario with our episode last year about neurosecurity. The increasing vulnerabilities were accumulating as you make the connections between your digital services and your nervous system more robust.
1: Indeed, the idea that you could have your your brain implant hacked or your pacemaker uh, device hacked, etc.
0: So anyway, just entertaining these scenarios and thinking about the risks posed makes me think, should we have international cyber warfare non-proliferation treaties the same way we've got nuclear non-proliferation treaties?
1: I mean absolutely. As we've been driving home, these, these are legitimate threats and therefore they – you know, we should be taking steps to prevent uh, um, it
0: from happening. As far as what countries could do, countries around the world could do to protect themselves, I mean I wonder – Is there an option other than just trying to revert to a world of decreased connectedness? And would societies ever do that without being forced to by some kind of tragedy where like decreased connectedness of course would mean fewer rather than more systems can be accessed by the internet? Where you might have crucial systems for controlling infrastructure kept offline or in isolated networks that are not plugged into the internet. And so it would be a lot harder to infect them with some kind of autonomous digital weapon. Uh, th- though I wonder if that's possible. Even would it take some kind of visceral disaster that calls to mind images through the availability heuristic to make people think this is worth doing?
1: And it's a good point because I, uh, I mean, I've certainly read predictions for this sort of digital future, uh, both in sci-fi and just in general futurism. The idea that the internet will become, say, more national, more regional, more more layered, and indeed, and indeed, less worldwide. Um. Uh, the alternative, of course, is a, is a continuation of what we've already been doing, essentially building what uh, cybersecurity expert Bruce uh, Schneier uh, referred to as, uh, as a worldwide computer. We're building <laughs> a worldwide computer, yeah. and it's, uh, it, it's susceptible to attack at every level from baby monitors to uh, to nuclear power plants. I get you know I I would hope that we're that, that we that we will grow into this globally connected world that will be like that will be the, the people deserving of such a worldwide computer. Mm-hmm. But if not then yeah, we deserve the the regional model I guess.
0: Well, I I don't like the regional model. I mean, I mm-hmm. understand that th- some decrease in connectedness might be necessary to to prevent attacks. But then again, I like the world-connected model in terms of communication. I mean, all the good stuff about connection yeah. between cultures, I don't think I buy into the nationalist mindset that says we should only be talking and interacting with people within our own nas- uh, national boundaries or our own culture. That seems very limiting. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be able to communicate across borders and, and with people all around the world. That That's something I love about what we get to do. Right. Uh, and so, it, I don't know, that, that sounds like a horrible thing to do, but then again... I mean, I wonder if th- there are ways to to leave open the good channels <laughs> while preventing people from from using digital exchange to hurt one another.
1: Well, I mean, part of this goes back to our past discussions on just the the the, the origins of the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Someone argue that uh, that that one of the big problems is just uh, security issues with the internet itself, and the idea that you have this thing that was built as a as a, essentially a, a private network for uh, for developers. That has been bloated out into this global system that it was really never meant to be. So we we need a new internet. We need a new uh, human race. <laughs> we, <laughs> uh, j- just for starters, those are two things that would help.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, so if there there are any takeaways from this episode, I, I would say I think it's that people should should understand the relative severity of different types of autonomous technological weapon threats, like. That that cyber warfare is not just an inconvenience. It's not just like, oh, darn, the power went out for a day or, oh, you know, there was a DDoS attack on the website I wanted to go to and it went down. Th- th- these could be real serious. This could be the warfare of the future and every bit as serious as conventional warfare. Absolutely. And uh, and so that's worth considering, and it's so it's worth promoting people who have good ways of thinking about this. If if you know of cybersecurity experts, the kind of people who are doing the best thought about this, coming up with ways of, of thinking about uh, defenses, especially as we've talked about the kinds of defenses that don't lead to a you know a shutdown of international communication mm-hmm. and and this worse off world. Shine a light on those people. I I, want to know what our best options are. Who's doing the best thinking about this right now?
1: Yeah, let us know. We'll do our part to shine our light uh, on those people as well. All right, so there you have it. Uh, As always, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find this and other uh, episodes of note. We've had a a number of them that have dealt with technology and warfare. Uh, And likewise, uh, there are a number of issues in this episode that we could easily return to, such as cyber warfare. Even the more uh, uh, traditional autonomous uh, weapon designs, we could do multiple episodes on that as well. Well, uh,
0: as we said, I think one thing definitely worth exploring would be the more specific nitty-gritty of the scenario. I was imagined by cyber warfare experts like what's the most plausible thing that could happen and how could it be prevented
1: Exactly um, so, hey, yeah, check it out, stuffdoubleyourmind.com, uh, and you'll find links to our various social media accounts there as well. And if you want to support the show, uh, rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do so.
0: Big thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to let us know a topic you'd like us to cover in the future, to just send us uh, your your thoughts, to say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show, of that, you can always email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: It's Zumo Play.